Ruthspresso, episode 260. Face it. Wait, I don't know if I can really uh, do that whole intro. I don't know if it really is compatible with the subject matter of this episode. So, well, hello, this is your host, Daniel Minnick, and this is another episode of Truth Espresso, and I'm going to cover another verse that is one of those difficult verses in the Bible to interpret. It's also one of those difficult ones to try to stomach if you don't really know what the context is. In fact, this is one verse that I've actually read some people say that trying to explain this verse, trying to reconcile this verse with the morality of their faith caused them to deconvert. This is a verse that atheists will use to make a mockery of the Bible. So obviously, this is a very difficult verse, and it's important to cover it and understand it and get the context of it. So what is this dreadful verse to which I am referring? Well, this is a verse that makes us ask the question, does God reward cruelty to babies? And so you might be thinking, well, what kind of a verse would make you raise that question, Daniel? Well, that is none other than Psalm 137 and verse 9, which shockingly says, Happy shall he be, or happy is the one that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. And little ones, it's not talking about cockroaches. It's talking about human babies. And so, wait a minute. Happy is the one that taketh babies and smashes them against rocks? What kind of a verse is this, especially in the Psalms, the songs of praise, those beautiful things that were sung, usually directed to God and talk about how majestic he is? Why would this be in one of the Psalms? Why would this be anywhere in the Bible? Well, that's why we're doing this episode so that we can really wrap our heads around this. And especially if we get challenges from people to explain this, that we'd be prepared to explain one of the most difficult verses in the Bible. In fact, this is the verse that I thought would be in the Christian Writers article when I first started looking at it as the most difficult verse in the Bible. So, if you listen to a previous episode, we talked about Mark 13, 32, about Jesus not knowing the timing of his second coming. Yes, indeed, that's one of those verses that really trips up a lot of Christians that are trying to understand the incarnation and how it could be that Jesus, if he's truly God, doesn't know something about his own coming. And so, I highly recommend you listen to that one to get some good explanations for that. But now, how do we explain a psalm, a verse, especially just in the Bible anywhere, that says that someone would be happy to kill babies? Is this verse saying that God is commanding people to kill babies? Is this verse saying that God rewards people for killing babies? Or at the very least, is God suggesting in this verse that killing babies will make the killers happy? or that it would make anyone happy. Now, of course, there are weirdos out there that get some kind of fetish from doing something like this, but why would an inspired verse of Scripture say such a thing? 
And it doesn't seem to be talking about those type of people. It seems on its face to be saying that if someone were to go ahead and kill babies, that it would make them happy and that we're not regarding that as a problem in this verse. Well, this definitely requires us to look at some context. So let's look at the context of Psalm 137 verse 9. And of course, with context, you have to look at the context of the verse within the chapter. And then you also have to look at the context of the chapter in history, in this case. So, Psalm 137 as a whole is a psalm that was written... I don't know if even if it was sung at the time, it was written intended to be sung, but the singer, the writer, laments that he can't even sing. This is not a happy psalm at all. This was written when the inhabitants of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, were exiled in Babylon. So this was not a happy state. And likely this psalm was written far enough into the captivity where the writer possibly was someone who experienced such tragedy. He knew the experience before captivity of how wonderful it was to go to Jerusalem and to praise God and to participate in the feasts and the customs. And yet now he saw family brutally murdered. He was taken into captivity, had to do a long, painful walk in bonds to the kingdom of Babylon and to serve a pagan king. And then now to have Babylonians mock him for his past experience of bliss in Jerusalem as a conquered captive. And so we have to keep this context in mind when we see the lament of this psalm. This is not a psalm of praise and greatness. It's what you would call an imprecatory psalm. It's a psalm of asking God to judge the enemies of his people. Now, to get a little further context with the captivity of Babylon, we should look back to an earlier captivity, one that happened over a hundred years before this, but it kind of gives us a taste of just how bad these captivities were. So, in 732 BC, the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom of Israel and took the people captive. And you have to think that the people in the southern kingdom always had to be ready because if Assyrians wanted to push their borders south, well, they would be next. And these Assyrians were very feared people. They were dreaded people and for good reason. Because when we detail what they were like, you would realize why people, why kingdoms and cities feared them. Why they would prefer them as allies rather than enemies. And the prophet Habakkuk describes the Assyrians treating their victims as if they were wild animals whom they hunted or fished to scoop out in a net bunched together. Now, as I've researched what the Assyrians were like, this description is an extremely poetic understatement. So Habakkuk, rather than getting into the nitty-gritty, cruel details of this, he kind of just, in general, broadly describes what the Assyrians were like and how they treated their captives. So the Assyrian king ruled and expanded his kingdom with psychological warfare. 
The abject fear of Assyrian torture caused cities to surrender in self-humiliating ways, and they begged to be allowed to pay sky-high taxes. So basically, they were begging to be kind of foreign slaves to the Assyrian kingdom. So what would the Assyrians be like where you had people begging them to treat them kind of as slaves to work and pay ridiculous taxes? Well, because if you wanted to avoid the physical pain that the Assyrians were very practiced at imposing on their captives, you would probably be like these people too and beg to be slaves because being slaves to the Assyrians and just having to work hard and wear yourself out for very little, if any gain for yourself at all, was paradise compared to what the Assyrians would do to you as an alternative. Some people, some cities, the leaders would even commit suicide before the Assyrian armies approached their city walls because of the terror that would await them if they were taken alive. So if they knew that the Assyrians were marching their way there, and if they knew that they would likely have to experience the fate of being a conquered foe, then committing suicide was an order of magnitude, I mean, inconceivably better than what the Assyrians would inflict on you if they got their hands on you. Assyrian diplomacy was anything but kind. They developed terrifying methods of war into an art form and a science. And they advertised their methods boldly to any nation who would dare resist. Assyrian king Ashurbanipal II chronicled his cruelty to foes by things such as leaving them impaled on top of pointed stakes in their chest, letting their back arch, letting their arms and legs hang down from the sides and letting the torturous death happen slowly as their weight continued to increase their penetration. I'm trying to describe this in a way where you get a mental image without uh, being too graphic about it. Uh, the king also described decapitating people and building pillars with their heads. He would punish male captors by, uh, let's say, an ancient form of surgery to turn them into eunuchs. And of course, you know, they didn't have or use any anesthetics. He would also have people skinned alive and he would drape their skins over walls. And of course, this was to make sure that people saw them so that they would know that that would be their same fate if they were to mess with them. On some cities, the king of Assyria simply went scorched earth and leveled them into a desert where the king just marched his armies in and said, don't spare anything, don't take any spoils, just totally wipe out the city in such a way that there are no ruins, nothing left over, turn it into parched earth. Assyrian soldiers would experience such overwhelming PTSD from the torturous techniques that they had to impose on their captives that they were constantly haunted by their victims. They, they thought that they were mercilessly haunted by the dead spirits of their victims. 
The gruesome decorations that the Assyrian king would put on the outside so that even anyone inside, but especially those outside, would take notice, weren't because of personal style. Maybe they were, but that wasn't the intention. They were a clear warning to outsiders. So, if a city so much as demonstrated any attempt to defend themselves from the Assyrians, no matter how brief and no matter how willfully they surrendered and begged afterwards, their captives would suffer the same gruesome and torturous fate as other cities that fought back valiantly. There simply was no other option, and there was no forgiveness allowed for any opposition. If the Assyrian king sent ambassadors to your city asking for tributes, or just to hand over the entire city to the Assyrians, you rolled out the red carpet and you kissed the toes when he arrived. Period. That's just the way the Assyrians conducted business. So, if you knew that the Assyrians had their eyes on anything you owned, anything in your city or town, you just told them, take whatever you want. You know, I will willfully go above and beyond and give you anything you want ever. Because if you didn't do that, you know, you could undergo the most inconceivable, torturous, long-suffering fate imaginable. So that's the way the Assyrians were. And why am I talking about the Syrians when the psalm was about the Babylonians? Well, the Babylonians ultimately were you know, at first seemingly part of the Assyrian Empire, but then they became their own empire. And of course, being familiar with the Assyrians, also kind of setting the Assyrians back and growing themselves, they of course were familiar with Assyrian tactics. So, the Babylonians would not have been nice people either. Now, remember, if you've read the book of Jonah, those four chapters in the book of Jonah, maybe this provides a little bit of context for you. Now, Nineveh became the megatropolis of the Assyrian Empire. And remember, this was the city to which God told Jonah to preach. And Jonah didn't want to do so because of how cruel the Assyrians were to his people. Now, having just heard me explain how the Assyrians treated their captives, including many of Jonah's own people in the northern kingdom of Israel, do we kind of get a little perspective on why Jonah wouldn't be excited about wanting to preach to the Ninevites? Much less even go near there. Uh, it's hard to get much more satanic than how the Assyrians treated human beings like vermin. Yet, only then can we grasp just how gracious God is, even to the most vile people who repent. Remember God, at the end of Jonah says how many people there are. There are about a hundred thousand people there who don't know their right hand from their left, and should I not spare them and even much cattle? Yeah, when we understand the kind of people we're talking about. As much as the story of Jonah gets us to be frustrated at Jonah for just doggedly not wanting to obey God, we at least understand his motives a little bit so that we could also understand the incredible grace of God. 
Did you know that Striving Fraternity provides speakers and seminars that we would come to your church and disciple your people? We have seminars on the Bible interpretation made easy, creation science, evangelism, presuppositional apologetics, even on sexual abuse. These are just some of the many things that we could provide for your church. Consider inviting one of our speakers to your church. You can contact us at speaker at strivingforeternity.org. Now, the Assyrians fortified the northern kingdom of Israel and received massive wealth from taxes from not only neighboring regions, but ones abroad more eastward. However, Babylon was becoming a force to be reckoned with in the 600s BC. In 608 BC, Necho, the pharaoh of Egypt and an ally of Assyria, wanted to help them fight against the Babylonians at the former Hittite city of Carchemish. And Josiah was king of the southern kingdom of Judah at this time. And we've Uh, If you read, uh, Josiah was well known for being a righteous king in the midst of some evil kings. But Josiah does make a little bit of a blunder here. And Judah's pagan northern and southern neighbors were at war with each other. So when Necho, pharaoh of Egypt, sent armies up to Carchemish, Josiah and his army went out there as allies of Babylon to fight against him. Then Necho sent word to Josiah that his beef was not with him, but with the Babylonians. And the Pharaoh claimed that God commanded him to fight the Babylonians. And what's interesting, according to the narrative in 2 Chronicles chapter 35, the Pharaoh may actually have been right. Josiah refused to cooperate and ended up getting shot with an arrow and later dying from this wound. And this was the beginning of the end for the southern kingdom of Judah. Jehoahaz, Josiah's successor, reigned only three months before Pharaoh Necho put him in fetters and took him captive to Egypt. Necho then installed Jehoiakim as king and made him pay taxes to Egypt. Jehoiakim was an evil king and reigned for 11 years. Next, Jehoiakim's son Jehoiachin reigned for only three months. And by this time, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, was becoming a bigger problem and was taking over parts of Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar laid siege on Jerusalem and led Jehoiachin captive to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar set up Zedekiah then as a vassal king who reigned from captive Jerusalem for 11 years. Of course, not heeding the warnings of Jeremiah the prophet that he must serve the king of Babylon, Zedekiah tried to rebel and suffered the consequences. Now, although the Assyrians were history's torture devils, the Babylonians weren't exactly angels either. Nebuchadnezzar's long siege of Jerusalem imposed a bitter famine on the people. The armies of Jerusalem tried to escape the city, but the Chaldeans captured them and delivered them to Nebuchadnezzar. He then killed all Zedekiah's children in front of his eyes, then plucked out his eyes and put him in fetters and made him walk bound to Babylon. See, I said the the Babylonians, even if they weren't precisely like the Assyrians, they weren't all nice people either. 
Nebuchadnezzar's armies plundered the riches of Jerusalem, killed many men, women, and children in front of their families, and of course, smashing infants on rocks and or tossing them off cliffs. And they recruited the best and fairest young men to train and join the Babylonian armies. So in other words, when they captured people, they wanted to make sure the best ones became allied to Babylon and not rebels, and also to condition them not to try to escape Babylon. So captivity was meant to be a completely thorough thing, with the future in mind. The original northern tribes of Israel had been scattered throughout the Assyrian regions to keep them subjugated. That's how the Assyrians would do things. Separate all their captives. Make sure they can't group together uh, so that they can rebel. So when we read scriptures about regathering Israel, it has that in mind because of the northern tribes who were scattered abroad in the northern regions of Assyria. The southern kingdom of Judah was almost entirely taken captive to Babylon. There were a few stragglers left remaining in basically the city ruins. Now, the captivity in Babylon would last 70 years, as scripture uh, prophesied. For the people of Israel who lacked faith, all these conditions just screamed of utter devastation with no hope of ever being a free people again. So nothing in life to look forward to other than miserable slavery to a pagan people. And anything of their culture and traditions seemed doomed to be a distant, tantalizing memory. So with all this as context, imagine the mindset of the writer and singer of Psalm 137. This is someone who may have experienced life before being a slave in Babylon, but whatever the case, by this time, by the time of the writing of this psalm, the glory of Jerusalem was a distant memory. As the Babylonians boasted of their superiority over the entire world, they made sure their subjects knew their place. Now, the Levites, who used to be professional singers, could no longer muster a song. They could only weep. The psalm mentions that they hung their harps on the trees near possibly the Euphrates River. And instead of pity, the Babylonians further humiliated the Jews. They challenged them, sing for us one of your songs of Zion. This wasn't just curiosity. This was mockery. Sheer hopelessness prevailed as these singers could only bow their heads and reply, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land, was their thought. They were willing to give up any talent that they had if they allowed themselves to use it without the hope of returning to Jerusalem. This is how much this psalm reflects the absolute doom and gloom of the current experience, but the loyalty to Jerusalem that without the joy of returning to Zion, these people would not want to become skilled in anything that wasn't attached to their original profession in Jerusalem. So as I said before, Psalm 137 is an imprecatory psalm, which means that it asks God to judge Israel's enemies. 
So in verse 7, Psalm 137, verse 7, the psalm asks God to bring some form of judgment to their traitorous cousins, the Edomites, who assisted the Babylonians and desired that Jerusalem be destroyed. So when you had the Edomites, who were the descendants of Esau, who kind of formed their own region, there was somewhat of a sibling rivalry between the Israelites and the Edomites, but there is also tensions such that they became kind of enemies. And so although God told the Israelites that the Edomites have their own blessings and not to fight against them, the Edomites encouraged Babylon to capture Jerusalem, they said, raise raise the city to the ground so it shows just how much the edomites at this time were not so friendly to those in the kingdom of judah so of course this psalmist remembers that when he's thinking about the destruction and the captivity and the slaughter of his family that the edomites their distant cousins there told the babylonians to raise the city to the ground And now, verses 8 through 9 are the most important verses in this psalm, and of course are the most controversial. Verse 8 gives a general statement that whoever defeats Babylon will be happy. Basically, the psalmist is wishing that Babylon gets the equal retaliation it deserves. So, in other words, what they did to the people, it would be happy for the one who does that to them. And then verse 9 further states that the one who dashes Babylon's infants against the rocks will be happy. So even after all of this, we still are going to struggle with this verse. I mean, if a Christian doesn't struggle with this verse, I would have to wonder about that Christian's heart. Of course we're going to struggle with this. This psalm was not written in such a way that we could gloss over the statement in verse 9 and be callous to it. But what we can do is understand it so we don't draw incorrect conclusions from it. Can you prove that God is a trinity? Can you prove that Jesus is God? Can you defend the Christian faith? And what is it that Christians truly believe? The new book by Andrew Rappaport, What Do We Believe?, will answer those questions and more. Some people just don't understand what the church is today. But this book will go through the history and meaning of the church. And what's more important than to understand man's sinfulness and God's salvation? Get your copy at whatdowebelievebook.com or at the strivingforeternity.org store. So, what Psalm 137 verse 9 is not? Psalm 137 verse 9 is not any form of command from God. We don't see any go and do in this verse. It simply says that the one who does this will be blessed. There's no command to do this action at all. Psalm 137.9 is also not any kind of principle of life from God. This is not a beatitude, like if you look at the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus and he says, blessed are the peacemakers. This happy is the one who dashes the little ones against the stones is not a beatitude. It's not like Jesus could say, blessed are the peacemakers. Oh yeah, and blessed are those who kill babies. 
I'm not trying to be facetious. I'm trying to demonstrate that Psalm 137 verse 9 cannot be, should not be, and is not intended to be by its context any kind of principle for life such that we could list it with the Beatitudes of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Number three, Psalm 137 verse 9 is not any kind of devaluation of babies. This verse is not saying that God doesn't place value on babies or that we shouldn't place value on babies. This verse is not a general statement about the value of babies that it's worth dashing them against stones, okay? Without context, you cannot take this verse in any way as if it were a command, a principle, or an evaluation. So, what Psalm 137 verse 9 is? Psalm 137 verse 9 is an emotional statement. We cannot read any cold-heartedness into this verse, because if we look at the entire psalm and understand the context we see that this statement is said in emotional distraught. It is not a callous statement. It is not a statement of despising babies. It is a statement of mourning one's self-situation. Second, Psalm 137 verse 9 is an indicative statement. So, as I said before, it is not a command, it is not a principle, it is not an evaluation of the worth of babies. The statement is simply indicative. It's making a statement about the reality of a current situation. Third, Psalm 137 verse 9 is a synecdoche of a greater context and meaning. So what is a synecdoche? Basically, it's a specific statement given to stand for the whole of something. So the statement that happy is the one who dashes their Babylon's infants against the rocks, it's really standing for a plethora of things. And all of these things in general are the characteristics of what the Babylonian captivity looked like. So the statement itself basically is describing the complete destruction of Babylon or that someone would come in and overthrow Babylon. Basically, happy is the one personified really as the kingdom that would take over Babylon, lead them captive, destroy their glory of their kingdom. And the statement about dashing the little ones really is a statement about the whole, like this is what happens. This stands to represent the complete destruction and horror of a full conquest. Now, fourth, Psalm 137 verse 9 is a prophetic statement that applied to another pagan nation, not God's people. So, if it's not a command, it's not a request, it's not a principle, it's not an evaluation about the worth of babies or anything like that, it's really not even something that applies to God's people at all. It's basically reflecting on prophecy. Because Isaiah happened before this time. Isaiah was written before the captivity. The prophet Isaiah warned the people that there would be a captivity. 
but they also had the promises. Isaiah had the promises that Israel would be regathered, so the psalmist knew at least he had to have that distant, faint hope that their final fate was not to be in captivity. They knew the promises, which also meant that somehow they would return to their land. But there was nothing really in Isaiah that told them that they would rise up and be conquerors. So, Psalm 137 verse 9 doesn't apply to God's people, Israel, or the kingdom of Judah here. It really applied to another pagan nation. So, what is the prophecy in Isaiah? The prophecy was that the Medes will defeat the Babylonians and will repay them for their cruelty. So, we look at Isaiah chapter 13 and verses 15 through 19, we see a prophecy, and it says, Everyone that is found shall be thrust through, and everyone that is joined unto them shall fall by the sword. Their children also shall be dashed to pieces before their eyes, their houses shall be spoiled, and their wives ravished. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them, which shall not regard silver, and as for gold, they shall not delight in it. Their bows shall also dash the young men to pieces, and they shall have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eye shall not spare children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. So this is a prophecy in Isaiah before the Babylonian captivity saying that, Judah, you need to submit to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. You will be led captive because of your sins. You will be in captivity 70 years, but the Medes will then rise up and basically do the same thing to Babylon as Babylon did to Judah. And it specifically mentions the children being dashed. I mean, it's hard to talk about that, but that's the way ancient kingdoms treated each other. They used such cruelty to devastate, humiliate, and subject their conquered foes. These statements in Isaiah were not necessarily meant to shock the reader with something unusual. They describe the results of ancient captivity. So, to mention these things is to make known a full conquest. I hope that's what you can understand. When we read these tragic statements about children being killed, people being thrust through with a sword and the arrow and wives ravished and, you know, no pity, not sparing children. This was how a pagan ancient kingdom treated its captors utterly to humiliate them, to demoralize them, to terrorize them, to make them willing subjects, to break them in such a way that they will stay captives and slaves for the foreseeable future. And so, when Psalm 137 verse 8 says, Happy is the one who does to Babylon what you did to others, and then verse 9 says, Happy is the one who dashes the little ones against the stones, it's talking about the horrors of a full captivity in general, and it reflects the words in Isaiah that prophesied that the pagan kingdom of the Medes would overthrow the pagan kingdom of Babylon, and they do pagan things to pagans. 
And so, according to prophecy, the Israelites, the captives from the kingdom of Judah would recognize that as they're struggling with the mockery of the Babylonians against them to say, sing one of your songs of Zion so we can laugh you to scorn at how utterly impotent and hopeless you have to be, after seeing your own children killed in this kind of manner, that the emotional reflection of the writer of this psalm is basically to say the one or the kingdom who carries out this act of retribution against the Babylonians would indeed be happy. Not happy in a people of God virtue sense, but happy in a pagan sense. And when that happens also, as much as captive Israel would not be involved in that activity, they knew that pagans fighting pagans in this way would ultimately lead closer to their release back to their promised land. And that was the hope behind the statements, behind these gut-wrenching statements. And so I hope that as we've listened to this episode, as we've gone through the context in Psalm 137, that we will understand that verse 9 is not something that we, living in 21st century Western civilization, wherever you live, but having an easier life, not being like them and not understanding what they went through, not understanding retribution in this way, but also understanding that this was in no way a command or a principle of life or in any way where God was saying that babies don't have worth. This doesn't in any way support abortion. It doesn't in any way say that killing babies leads to happiness at all. The context leads us to the truth, and so I hope that this episode was helpful. And so, stay tuned for the next episode of Truth Espresso, and God bless. Mm-hmm.